Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the living world. I am doing this without using my headphones this time because the last episode I had a bit of a technical issue where my voice was quiet for like 20 minutes. Uh, so sorry about that. And I hope that you guys could have uh, could still hear me. And um, yeah, so I hope you all have had a good week so far. It's the end of week 11 here at St. Andrews, which means the end of classes. Woo! Now, we still have about two weeks or three weeks until um, <clears throat> Christmas break comes, but that is only because uh, there's exams now. So uh, good job, everyone, for finishing classes. Woohoo! Um, all of you guys from the US or who celebrate Thanksgiving, happy uh, Thanksgiving as it was Thanksgiving on Thursday. Uh, it was weird for me being over, being here uh, at St. Andrews and, and not being at home with my family because I'm always, I'm always at home with them for Thanksgiving because I always have break for Thanksgiving. So it was kind of weird because uh, this was a first that I had never been home for Thanksgiving before, which is pretty, pretty crazy. But um, yeah, I had some good chicken. I went to this uh, restaurant in town called Forgan's. Uh, for those of you who haven't been there, it's kind of pricey, but it's really good. If you want some good, um, good food there, uh, they have this like Thanksgiving special meal, but I think they stopped serving it because it's after Thanksgiving. But next year, you guys can go if you want to have a special meal, you can go there if you want. Uh, but yeah, that place is real good. They have this nice walkway with like all these like plants and it goes on for a really long time. It's really, it's really aesthetically pretty. So even if you don't want to go eat there, you can always just go and admire their pretty uh, walkway. Uh, yeah, so I hope you all, um, if you celebrate Thanksgiving, you had a happy Thanksgiving, even if it was um, a Zoom Thanksgiving or <laughs> a Zoomsgiving. I think I've seen that term around a few times because we were all on Zoom or Teams or FaceTime or whatever. But yeah, I hope you guys had a good uh, good week and the upcoming exams. This is actually the last week of uh, required shows. So uh, you might hear from me next week if I feel like doing a show, but maybe not. I don't know, I haven't figured that out yet. But if I don't, host another show before semester two. I wish you all, wish all of you guys the best of luck with your exams or essays or, or whatever. Cause I, it turns out I actually have both. I have an exam and then I have some essays to write. So that'll be fun. That'll be a fun thing that I spend the next two weeks working on. Oh, well. Uh, anyways, uh, I'm gonna get into the show now. Uh, this week's uh, school is the University of Tartu which is actually in Estonia. And my dad, he actually went to Estonia a few years ago. He's a really, um, he's really into like sports and active stuff. He went there specifically for a bike race. Um, I think he rode for like the US team or whatever, but I didn't get to go because I was too young, but he and my mom went over to Estonia for this bike race and they showed me some pictures and it, it, it looks really cool. And Estonia as a country, actually, it's actually, pretty small. I was I was reading up on it a little bit as I was researching this school and I found that their population is like only a little bit over a million people. And you think about that, that's that's smaller than like New York and then London and like 
big cities, Tokyo, etc. So pretty small country, kind of. Um, but yeah, still pretty, pretty interesting. I'm happy to be talking about this school this week because I really wanted to keep uh, finding schools from different areas of the world because it's really fun to talk about different places. And this uh, and the University of uh, Tartu actually it was established in uh, 1632, so of course not as old as St Andrews, but it's still pretty old. And it was actually established, I believe, by um, the, the Swedes, so um, people from Sweden. Because I think I saw something about where Estonia used to be uh, ruled by the by. Um, Sweden, but of course it's independent now, so all that. But if you want to, if you want to learn more about Estonia's history and whatnot, you can always go on the internet and do some research on that. So uh, the University of Tartu actually is pretty interesting, uh, and they. I actually, when I was reading up on their research, it turns out they've done a lot of work on mushrooms. They have a lot of different mushrooms that grow around in, in Estonia because of the climate. And sadly, I wasn't able to find a um, a relevant research article to talk about mushrooms, but I've got some other interesting ones that I'm going to talk about today. The first uh, article that I'm going to discuss this morning is about MRSA, which is which it's it's an acronym actually. It stands for uh, Methicillin Resistant uh, Staphylococcus aureus, which is a certain uh, strain of bacteria. Um, it's more well known as a staph bacteria, so it's one of the two. And um, this is, um, so this uh, MRSA is, as I already said, it's one of the two types of uh, staph. I think there might be more, but this is just of one of the ones that I found. And it is, along with the other type, uh, MRSA is, uh, can be lethal actually. And the other kind of uh, staph bacteria that might also be uh, lethal is called uh, MISA or MSSA. This one stands for methicillin uh, susceptible uh, Staphylococcus aureus. And both of these, if you're infected with them, can lead to uh, blood infections. And uh, this, these blood infections can later lead to sepsis, which is where your body shuts down uh, from an overreaction to an infection, and you can get tissue damage and uh, later organ failure. And if you're curious, um, you can always look up sepsis. I know they've made they've made uh, quite a few references to it in uh, Grey's Anatomy, but I know Grey's Anatomy is not the most like medically accurate show, but it is a good show. You guys feel like you want to watch it later on. And what makes MRSA um, so important, and it was also the focus of the study, is that uh, MRSA, as its name suggests, it is resistant to methicillin. And methicillin is a type of antibiotic. And antibiotics, if you didn't already know, or if you already knew, they are used to kill bacteria. So there's many different kinds of antibiotics, and they target um, various things from uh, um, interacting with protein replication, cell membranes, basically anything within the bacterial cell that keeps it alive, the, these antibiotics will act upon it to later kill the cell. So that's why they're really important. And that's why it's a big deal that MRSA is resistant to uh, methicillin. 
And this has actually led to MRSA becoming what's known as a superbug. I'm sure you guys have heard of this term somewhere, but a superbug is a, a bacteria that is resistant to uh, modern antibiotics, which makes it really dangerous because you're unable, we're unable to treat it basically. And so I mentioned that MRSA can be lethal. Now you're probably wondering, how does it infect you? So MRSA actually, I thought it was some kind of respiratory disease before I looked it up, but it actually infects your body through cuts in your skin. And uh, generally MRSA will live on your skin. Now it doesn't live on the skin of everyone. It only lives on the skin of certain people. Uh, for instance, in uh, US hospitals, only about 5% of patients have MRSA on their skin. But this, even though it's only 5%, it's still uh, a bit of a significant number. Anyways, I mentioned that um, MRSA will enter your body through cuts in your skin. And uh, you can be more susceptible to potentially developing a MRSA infection if you have a weaker immune system. So if you have um, HIV, if you're taking immunosuppressant drugs, or you have any other kind of um, illness or disease that has impacted your immune system, you're more susceptible because your body's less able to fight off a um, infection of bacteria. Now, there are some signs to look for if you think you might have a MRSA infection. Number one is if you have a sore on your skin or on your body somewhere and it doesn't heal. So um, say it's been a few days, three or four days, and you have this really bad looking sore and it doesn't heal. So if it doesn't heal and it's really red and it's swelled and it hurts, then that might be a sign that you have uh, MRSA. Another thing to look for also is uh, red streaks that come from the sore. So say you have a sore on your arm and you see these little red lines on your skin. That may indicate that the MRSA um, has progressed to your bloodstream and it might later lead to blood infections, which are really, really bad. If you see any of this kind of thing, um, then you should go to a doctor because blood infections are bad. Uh, if you want an example of an almost lethal blood infection, uh, go look at the Hunger Games where PETA almost dies because he got a blood infection. So yeah, um, if you have any of that, uh, go to a doctor because that 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 is where you should go to get stuff like that treated. Uh, finally, um, another sign is uh, red bumps or blisters. Uh, now these could actually be other bacterial uh, infections or conditions, but you should still probably go to a doctor just to get them examined to see if you have MRSA at all. And uh, finally, the last symptom is um, pain at the sore that wherever that is on your body and if you have a really bad fever. So those are some things to look for if, if you think you might have a MRSA infection. Now, some of the um, things that, might, that you might think are MRSA but aren't are uh, number one, if you get a spider bite. Now, I've never actually gotten a spider bite, but um, I've seen some picture in it, pictures and it's like this little like, like bump on your skin, right? For those of you who have gotten a spider bite, it basically is just a bump. So you might you might think that's MRSA, but it isn't. Uh, there are two other conditions. Uh, number one is cellulitis, which is a uh, skin condition. And the last one is impetigo, which is also a skin condition. 
Uh, if you're curious about these two uh, conditions um, or in, in infections, you can look them up later on. It's I like their names though because they sound a lot like uh, you know Harry Potter spells. Um, they're all like fancy, kind of sound like Latin, cool cool spells like that. But anyways, um, and ways to prevent MRSA mainly include that you uh, keep up good hygiene because as I said, uh, MRSA uh, lives on some people's skin and that is also how it enters your body. So uh, number one, keep up good hygiene. Uh, also make sure to cover any cuts or uh, burns or injuries to your skin so that random bacteria don't enter. And this, this, this includes MRSA and this includes many other different types of bacteria. So it's not just MRSA you have to be aware of, but other, other things. And uh, also don't share your towels or your razors with people because uh, MRSA is on the skin. So if you give, if you potentially let someone borrow your razor and you had MRSA, then you might give it to them if they cut themselves, which would be really, really bad. Um, and finally, if you think you have symptoms of MRSA, go to a doctor. That, that is really important that you go and you get diagnosed. Or if you don't have it, then you go and you get all of your worries abated. What's also really interesting is that um, I mentioned that, that uh, MRSA uh, can be lethal and uh, staph infections can be lethal. And uh, in 2011, actually, in the U.S., uh, there were a, the 4% of all of staph infections were caused um, through uh, the injection of uh, drugs. So uh, using different needles to inject drugs that led to about 4% of deaths from MRSA. This actually, this figure was in 2011 and by 2016, which was five years later, which is now four years later, which is, or, which is we're now four years after that, which is really weird. Um, this uh, 4% in 2011 rose to 9%. So 9% of uh, lethal staph infections in the US were all from uh, drug injections, which is pretty crazy. So uh, again, if you, uh, yeah, so there is a, quite a risk there um, for uh, people who use drugs, and another reason as to why they should be careful, along with many other people in general, and the importance of clean needles. Because they're very important because those will puncture your skin and go directly into your uh, blood and your body. So pretty, pretty important there. Now, the study that I'm going to talk about uh, related to MRSA, it was, it's a little bit, it's a tad, a tad bit dated, than some of my usual studies, uh, just because I had a tad bit of a hard time finding uh, really recent studies from the University of Tartu, but a uh, pretty interesting study. Uh, we There were researchers from uh, the University of Tartu, uh, the University of Copenhagen, uh, Umea University in Sweden, and Aarhus University in Denmark. And I mentioned this study was published in 2018, it was actually in January of 2018, so uh, almost three years ago now, because we're almost heading into January of 2021, which is crazy. And what made this study really important 
is that it discovered a mechanism that MRSA uses uh, to help it resist uh, the stress that is caused upon the bacterium from antibiotics. So this is mainly how it's resistant to the antibiotic methicillin. Now, uh, what the bacteria does is that it creates a special type of enzyme. This enzyme actually, it modifies the bacterial DNA so that it is now uh, remade into a uh, type of signal. And this signal is used by the bacteria if it is undergoing stress. So uh, when MRSA is exposed to antibiotics, that is a really stressful time for the bacterium. And um, when, it's, it, when it's exposed to antibiotics, lots of these um, compounds are formed. These uh, signaling molecules are, are formed or sent out. And what, this, what these molecules do that's important is that they signal the cells to slow or stop their cell growth. So this slow, this slow uh, down in growth will lead actually to uh, the MRSA um, to enter a kind of like a hibernation state uh, where it's not as metabolically active and, and it basically like hibernates you know, like, a, like a bear, basically. The bacteria hibernates. And when the um, MRSA is in this state, uh, the bacterial cells aren't impacted as much by the antibiotics. So this is how it's able to survive dosages of antibiotics with this signal that um, later leads to them hibernating. And these uh, scientists in the study, they were able to actually make um, a kind, they were actually able to obtain a kind of a 3D model of this specific process uh, using advanced uh, imaging techniques. And this gave them a lot of clarity. Uh, and I read in the, in the report about the study that they were able to actually get down to atomic level size for this 3D modeling, which is really good, uh, really, really, really nice to know that we have that much uh, specific data. And uh, this is really important too for understanding how to adapt our antibiotic uh, treatments, because if this is if this kind of uh, resistance is happening in other bacteria, which I assume it is, then it's really important to understand how the bacteria are doing this so we're able to better treat uh, various infections and whatnot. So this is a really good step up for MRSA. I hope that in the later future, we're able to get some more progress um, within different areas of uh, bacterial infections and whatnot so that we're able to adapt antibiotic treatments because that's really important because if our antibiotics start to fail then uh, that leads to more people who aren't able to get treatment for in, an infection and that can lead to uh, more people dying from infections. So again why it's really important to follow through um, with an, with an, uh, an antibiotic uh, course of treatment so that you don't later develop superbugs, because that would be really bad. That would be quite bad to 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 get another superbug. We don't we don't want more. And that's also an area that I'm pretty interested in, um, like figuring out new antibiotics, because that'd be really cool. 
it's an area that I'm pretty interested in. And I hope it's interesting to you guys as well, because I didn't know this much about MRSA, and now I do. I think, yeah, you guys will like this next, this next uh, research topic. It's about a type of flower. And uh, this flower is actually called a cowslip flower. So I've never heard of it before I found it um, mentioned in a study. I was like, what the heck is a cowslip flower? It's, the, it's a funny name, right? But it's just a fancy name for a type of wildflower actually. And if you're curious about this flower, its scientific name is uh, Primula varus. If you're really into flowers, you can go and search up this cowslip flower. It's 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 actually pretty it's actually pretty cute. I saw some pictures of it on the internet. It's so it, I said it's a wildflower, so it's actually relatively common. It has five petals. And it grows in various uh, grassy regions or meadowy areas uh, within uh, Europe, and uh, it um, it's a it's a spring wildflower, and so so it blooms in the spring. So you can go look around um, your different meadows for this flower, and it has uh, like ovally shaped leaves. And uh, its flowers are really interesting because they're like they're like bell shaped, and they're um, they're mainly like a yellow yellow a light like yellow color, and uh, you can look them up on the internet. But they're actually really they're actually really pretty. And it now makes me wonder if cows actually eat them because they're called cowslip flowers. I'd assume so because you have the the word cow in the name. But we'll see. Um, and actually, these flowers are in the same family as the as uh, buttercups. So, cowslips and buttercups are in the same flower family. And it's also uh, cowslip is also a cousin to the primrose. So, uh, yeah, primroses are cool. I mean, I've never seen one, um, but for those of you who have seen one, I'd love to hear about it if you want. And also, you've got the mention of uh, Prim in Hunger Games again, uh, where her name is actually Primrose. So, again, if you're curious about flowers and uh, blood infections, go and read the Hunger Games. It's a it's a pretty good book, frankly. It's really good, and the movies are actually pretty good too. <laughs> so, if you're curious on that, and you can go and watch the movies and read the books. Uh, anyways, uh, cowslip flowers they grow quite frequently. Uh, as I said, throughout Europe, uh, especially in the UK, more I think in England, but mainly anywhere where the weather is right and you've got a bunch of grassy areas. The uh, numbers recently of cowslip flowers have kind of dropped due to last, uh, <laughs> last no, loss of um, their habitat. So loss of uh, grassy areas and meadows have led to less of these types of flowers. Um, which led to the development of the study, actually. Uh, but what's some interesting facts about these flowers, actually, is that they have been used to make uh, tea and wine. And I did look this up the other day, and cowslip flower wine does actually exist. I don't know how good it would be, but it's pretty cool that that kind of thing exists out there. And cowslips actually were mentioned by Shakespeare. Uh, so those of you who like English, uh, Shakespeare, 
Ooh, overly authors, you, you know, Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, anyways, uh, cowslip flowers, they were mentioned by uh, Shakespeare. Uh, specifically, there's a line about them in The Tempest and uh, his other play, Henry V. So you can go and uh, if you have a copy of either of those plays, you can whip it out and <laughs> look for his mention of cowslips or uh, Henry V. I think it's pretty cool that that kind of flower was mentioned in a Shakespeare play being as old as it is. But that speaks to the longevity of these types of flowers, which is also really cool. And another interesting fact uh, about these flowers before I get on to the study is that they've also been called uh, St. Peter's Keys. And this is because um, of their of the, the shape of the flowers. They kind of look like keys. And uh, this is actually um, a, a, a story uh, from uh, the Bible about uh, the Apostle uh, Peter. For those of you who've read the Bible and who know a little bit more about it than I do. Uh, but yeah, so these flowers were even mentioned within the Bible, which is pretty cool. So you got Shakespeare and the Bible that mentions these flowers. Like, I, I looked at these flowers initially and I'm like, oh, yay, there are these fancy little wildflowers and they're not important at all. But they actually are pretty important in terms of just flowers and for their uses and mentions by other people. It's really interesting. Anyways, the study about these flowers was also pretty cool. It, the data from this was actually only published back in August of this year, so pretty recently. And it's pretty crazy for me because I think about it and I'm like, wait, it's November. And I've been here in school for maybe like two months. I keep wondering where the semester went. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this study featured researchers from the University of Tartu and the University of uh, Zurich in uh, Switzerland. And uh, what it what it looked at specifically is it looked at the cowslip flowers and specifically their morphology. So the study talked about how uh, cowslip flowers, they actually have two different uh, types of styles. And for those of you who don't know what a style is, I did mention it in my last episode uh, where I talked about pollen tubes. But the style in a flower is the long, uh, stocky part, um, which is the tube that goes down to the ovary of the plant. So, yeah, you can you can look that up later. But uh, what's interesting about uh, the style and cowslips are I already said that there's two different types. You've got one type of style that is a longer version, and you've got one that is a shorter version. And these different um, morphologies in cowslip flowers come about based on where the flowers uh, grow. So in Estonia, this uh, split in the uh, type of style is about 50-50. And uh, scientists wanted to study this specifically because they're worried about um, increased habitat loss for these flowers and how it will affect their uh, reproductive success. Because if you have significant declines in one population, then that can lead to less of individuals being able to reproduce and then you'll have less flowers 
in the next generation. So that, that can be a pretty big um, motivator to study something like that. And uh, I already mentioned that cowslips are wildflowers and they grow in grassy areas. And over the last few decades and or centuries, Europe has slowly lost uh, quite a bit of its grassland area um, because that has made way for urban areas. And that's led to a decline in these flowers. So that's why it's important to continue to study them. And uh, these scientists, they wanted to, uh, they wanted a way to analyze the uh, morphology of these flowers and see the different amounts of these types of style morphologies throughout these cowslip flowers throughout Estonia. So how they did this actually was they enlisted the help of um, everyday people, everyday citizens, because it would be really hard for a group of scientists to go and get data from all over the country. It's a lot easier to get help from people who live all over the country and for them to send in their data. And so these researchers, they created a website uh, that was used to upload different pictures of these cowslip flowers. Um, if you're curious about that website, uh, it's you can go to uh, cowslips.eu. That's the website um, where this data was collected. I don't know if it's still active or anything, but that's where the data is. And um, so these researchers, they sent out this website link and they had normal people um, upload their uh, different images to it. And these scientists, they promoted this website uh, via using uh, social media and posters and, and whatnot. So they tried to let as many people as they could know about this website and this study. And um, it's pretty interesting because they got back about a, a 1,700 different um, data inputs from people. And as I already said, Estonia has a population of a bit over a million. So that's, that's, that's pretty good for people sending in different pictures. And uh, what was sent in were different pictures of these uh, cow slips with the different sized uh, styles. And the results from the study actually were pretty cool. So um, what, this, what these scientists found is they found that um, there were more short styles within cow slips compared to longer ones. And uh, these main uh, changes and difference, differences in morphology primarily happened in smaller populations of the flowers. And uh, cowslips that were in areas that had more uh, people and higher populations generally followed the trend of where the, their styles were shorter and they weren't as long. So this, this study was really, was really important because A, we learned about how the styles in flowers vary, and B, it also highlights the effect of uh, habitat loss on these cowslip flowers. And um, yeah, it's, it's important not, not to just learn about the effect on cowslip flowers, but also important uh, for any similar kind of study to just see how habitat loss later affects um, 
different different aspects of 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 life and different animals it doesn't have to just be flowers it can be animals birds rep, reptiles even 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 people uh, yeah anyways i thought that that was a pretty interesting study because uh, i had no i had no idea that 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 cowslips had different sized styles that that's pretty interesting to me i i had no idea of that before and uh this last study i think will be uh it is pretty relevant to today and i think that you guys will quite enjoy learning more about it uh, i know i did uh to preface it is about uh miscarriages so uh i don't know if you guys have seen the news but uh duchess uh, megan 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 markle um who's the duchess of uh, sussex uh, back in july she had a miss a miscarriage of her own and i'll be uh posting a link to the uh news report about this and uh to to her and to everyone who's um every woman who's had a, a miscarriage i i just want to say and i i want to give my con condolences and uh well well wishings for their uh future and for their families and everyone involved uh, in their life and in that aspect of their life and um what makes miscarriages an interesting area of study is that it is not completely known yet uh, what can cause a miscarriage. So there are many different factors that contribute to causing one, but we don't know all of them. Uh, I'm gonna talk briefly about some of the main uh, ones that we know that do contribute to a cause of a miscarriage. But uh, just to let it be known, we're not entirely sure yet of all of the causes. This is just, uh, Quite a few of the causes that I found specifically. Number one, so a miscarriage could uh, is 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 primarily caused um, through when the fetus um, doesn't develop correctly. So that's when the um, the baby in uh, in utero doesn't develop correctly, and about half of miscarriages actually they uh, can occur due to. Um, this um misdevelopment and um and about half of this half of these miscarriages they occur due to a lack or an excess of chromosomes in the fetus and this uh varying amount of chromosomes is what later affects the fetus fetal development and later leads to a miscarriage so some examples of this are um i have i have quite a few examples actually um one of them is called a blighted ovum, which is where no fetus will form. You have uh, intrauterine fetal demise, which is where the embryo starts to form, but at some point along in the pregnancy, it stops developing. And then you also have a molar or partial molar pregnancy. And both of these conditions uh, lead to an abnormal growth of the placenta, and there's usually no fetus that grows from this because if you have an abnormal placenta, uh, that can be an issue because um, the placenta provides nutrients to the fetus. And if you have issues with this, that can lead to issues in pregnancy. 
Now, molar pregnancy is where um, the fetus uh, gets all of its chromosomes from just the father. And uh, partial molar pregnancy is where uh, the fetus will get chromosomes from the mother and the father, but it, uh, it, it might get double its chromosomes from the father. And these can all, these can all, these, these all lead to miscarriage. Now, it's not just uh, genetic uh, or uh, chromosomal issues that can lead to miscarriage. There are various um, health um, impacts that can lead, that may lead to a miscarriage. Uh, some of these include uh, thyroid disease, if you have hormonal problems, if there are issues in uh, the uterus or the cervix. And these types of health issues, uh, they generally uh, contribute to a miscarriage in the second trimester. And um, uh, just before I get into it a little bit more, I just want to say that a miscarriage uh, occurs um, if a baby is lost before 23 weeks. And uh, for those of you who don't know, there are three trimesters in a pregnancy. And um, yeah, so if the, if the baby is lost before 23 weeks, then it is classified as a miscarriage. And along with um, these health impacts, the age of the mother also can contribute quite a bit to um, the potential of a miscarriage. Uh, so if you are uh, uh, pregnant and you're under the age of 30, you have about a one in 10 chance of developing a miscarriage. If you are below the age of 40 and you're pregnant, you have a 20% chance of developing a miscarriage. And if you are uh, pregnant and over the age of 45, your chance uh, spikes to where you have a five out of 10 chance of developing a miscarriage. And uh, miscarriages, they happen to about 10 to 20% of women. So they're actually quite quite common. Not not like super common, but they are, they are common. Uh, if you have a room of 100 women, uh, 10 to 20 of them will, will have a miscarriage, which is pretty crazy. And while I said that a miscarriage uh, occurs when a baby is lost before 23 weeks, the majority of them occur before week 12 of pregnancy. So that, that is a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important threshold to get by um, in terms of pregnancy, because that's when most of the miscarriages occur. And uh, some symptoms of uh, miscarriages include uh, cramps or pain in your abdomen, uh, heavy uh, vaginal bleeding, and um, loss of uh, fetal tissue within the vaginal bleeding. So those are things to look out for um, if you think you might have a miscarriage. And if you have any of these symptoms, uh, go to a doctor and they can give you a test to see if you have had a miscarriage or not. Now, I have mentioned a lot of causes um, that are known to cause a miscarriage. And miscarriages in general, they are mainly not caused by the mother. Um, so it's, it's not the mother's fault if she has a miscarriage. So just keep that in mind. And many women actually who have miscarriages can later go on to have children uh, normally. Now, there are instances where um, 
uh, many recurrent miscarriages can occur. And this is when a woman might have three or more miscarriages in a row. These are actually really uncommon. Um, they only happen to about one out of 100 women. So um, yeah, that, that, that's an important thing to know. And that's, that's why miscarriages are a really important topic to be studying because they affect quite a lot of women. Even though it's only 10 to 20% of all pregnancies, think about the number of people in the world. We've got over 7 billion people. So if you extrapolate that kind of percentage out into the general population of uh, pregnant women, that is a, quite a large number. And this specific study about miscarriage was really important. It was, it was published only four days ago. So on, it was only published on November 25th this year. So really, it's really, really recent. And I was quite surprised to see it when I, when I was doing my research. I thought, whoa, this is really relevant. I need to talk about this. And this study was, um, it involved a lot of researchers, actually. Uh, there were over 50 researchers when I was looking at the paper. So that's a lot. That, that's a lot. But the main people uh, involved uh, were, were from a variety, they were from a variety of schools. I'm just going to mention a few of them. So there were researchers from, uh, of course, the University of Tartu. Um, there were people from the University of Bristol and also people from Oxford. And as I said, there were over 50 people who authored this paper. So um, lots of people. If you want to learn more about all the people who authored this paper, you can read the paper on my, uh, where the link is on my Facebook page after um, I publish that post. Anyways, I mentioned that this study was published on uh, just four days ago on November 25th. So really cool that it's that relevant. And what this study specifically looked at was um, the connections between uh, various maternal genes and their impact on the risk of miscarriages. So um, within the report on this study, um, it said that about two thirds of miscarriages are um, undefined uh, within their cause. So you've got quite a lot where you're not entirely sure of the cause of the miscarriage, but you know that you had a miscarriage. So it's really important that we learn more about this kind of aspect. And um, these researchers found that certain genes um, in women can contribute to a more likelihood for a miscarriage. Now, um, this specific study, they only looked at maternal genes, uh, nothing yet, uh, no research yet on paternal or uh, fetal genes. So it, it's it's kind of in its in its initial start stages, but still a pretty interesting study. And um, this study looked at uh, various data from uh, lots of women. Excuse me. And um, these these researchers they looked at data um, miscarriage data from over four hundred thousand women. So that so that's just that's just one example of the number of people, a number of, of women who 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 can later develop a miscarriage, and um, the study was was really important because there was a similar one that had occurred um, earlier, but this one specifically was of a much larger uh, 
size. And I just I just mentioned that they collected data from 400,000 women, which is a lot. And why it's also good to have a study where you have a lot of data so that your results are more balanced. And um, some of the results that they found from this uh, were that uh, some of these uh, maternal genes uh, may have impacted the biology of the um, placenta. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have a placenta, um, if you have a placenta and it's not formed correctly, this can lead to lots of issues because the placenta is how the fetus obtains its nutrients when it grows and develops. So this is one of the potential causes that these researchers found that might have been caused by these various maternal genes. And uh, as I said, uh, excuse me, I got up early. Um, as I said, um, this study is still quite ongoing and there is some more research to come in this area of the field, but it is it is a really good start to see that these these scientists they found this this interesting connection between the genes and the later uh, gene development impacts on the development of the fetus, which is really interesting. And I thought that like miscarriages beforehand that oh excuse me that they were um actually that they were mainly caused by like physical symptoms or stress and now now seeing that they might be caused by genetic differences is a really interesting thing and and it's also another note as to why the the field of um uh, genetic research is has been growing because uh, this is one of the aspects of it which is um health analysis. So you've not only got the health analysis of uh, other diseases like cancer, uh, you've got the analysis of uh, stuff like miscarriages and um, just general genetic history. And I actually, my, my parents, my parents thought that we should, we should do a genetics test for everyone in our family and, and see how we're all related. So my parents, they ordered um, a, uh, a kit from uh, 23andMe, which is a uh, DNA company uh, for, for me and, and my mom and my dad and my sister. And we all um, sent back um, some of our DNA for them to test, which is basically a fancy way of saying we sent them back our saliva because that's where you can get some of your DNA is the cheek cells within your mouth which are contained later in your saliva. And that was a really interesting uh, program that was available because uh, these people who worked at that company, they uh, took our DNA and they analyzed it and it showed our, um, ans our ancestry uh, history. Uh, so I found that I'm, I'm, I'm like almost like half um, English in my, direct ancestry, and then I've got a chunk from France and Germany and a little bit from Scandinavia, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a pretty interesting thing. Um, the kits are a little costly uh, for 23andMe, but they, they're pretty cool. Um, 
and it's it's nice because I can compare how much DNA I share with my parents and my sister and then any of my other family members who might have taken the same thing I can look and see how much DNA I share with them like my cousins so it's it's a really cool thing and another instance an example of how the genetic area in biology has been growing quite a lot um, yeah it's it's pretty cool um I'm not sure entirely yet if I if that's the area I want to go into uh, genetics because <laughs> I know like um, I want to do something in like the molecular aspect because that's that's what I'm majoring in right my 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 major is in uh, molecular biology but I'm not entirely sure yet as to which field but genetics might be a field that I consider and for those of you who are considering it or who are uh, later on in your years here at St Andrews good for you. Uh, genetics seems like a really cool field. Um, if you would, if you want to share any of your insight with me about um, how that has been going for you, I'd really love to hear about it as genetics is a really cool field and it might be something I consider personally. Uh, who knows? I, I, who knows? <laughs> I've got, I've got a good number of years to figure that out because I'm only here for a bachelor's not not a master's yet not a, not a phd yet nothing like that we'll see we'll see it could go into genetics or medicine i don't know i am kind of debating going into medicine but i'm like not a medic i don't i don't know i don't know i don't know i could totally see myself doing though like a combo between bio and medicine and just doing that kind of thing but who knows um Though, if any of you are doing that kind of combination of degree work, I would I would love to hear about how that works because that, for me at least, seems like a really cool area of of interest as well. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. So that that's a pretty interesting study. I didn't know that much about miscarriages, and uh, yeah. So I hope you guys have had a good week eleven. Or had a good week 11 uh, I'm I'm kind of freaked out you know because we don't have classes tomorrow or or tutorials or anything so hypothetically I don't have to get up tomorrow for my classes which is really nice because I had a 9 a.m. lecture three times a week when classes were running and it's it's nice for me because I can sleep in if I want to which is really which is really nice because now because as we're heading towards the winter solstice it's getting super dark when i get up in the morning i get up and it's and it's dark and it'd be i i, I like i woke up this morning at, at like eight or a little after eight and it was lighter and it was so nice to have the sun and oh i'm, I'm excited to sleep in a little bit because of uh, no classes though it is still an important time it's revision week and there are exams coming hope you guys uh, do okay with your revisions. Um, yeah, and I hope you all have had a good weekend so far. I know that at least in my dorm, uh, I live in University Hall, uh, we had a Christmas dinner, so it's fancy dinner. And uh, so they, they, they recommended that all of us wear either our gowns or fancy clothes. So I, had, I have a gown, uh, actually, so I wore that. But there were a lot of people that I saw, like, they, they were like, there were boys or people in 
boys, people in, in suits. And, and, and some, of the, some of the girls in the dorm, they were wearing like really fancy dresses and they were really pretty dresses, but it was weird for me seeing people dressed up. Cause I'm like, it's just a dinner. And then I'm also like, we're not gonna be able to go anywhere because of uh, the tier three restrictions. But you know, that's okay. It was nice to see everyone in a really festive mood, actually. Um, they, um, uh, they had put up a, a lot of tinsel everywhere in our, in our uh, dining hall. And there was even a Christmas tree. <laughs> so uh, for those of you who also have Christmas trees in your dorm, um, they're pretty cool. They're, I, I like them a lot. My, ours was pretty cool. It had like all these little ornaments and like lights and it was really tall. It was probably like 10 or 15 feet tall. It was really cool. Anyways, that was a fun thing that happened uh, for me back on Friday. Uh, but yeah, uh, the rest of the weekend, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And uh, I hope that you've enjoyed uh, episode eight of The Living World. I know I have. And if I don't host another episode this semester, uh, I wish you all the best in exams and that you all have an enjoyable uh, Christmas break. I've enjoyed hosting this show and um, I look forward to talking to you all about more research in the upcoming semester. Uh, thanks for listening to my show and I will see you all uh, next semester. Thanks so much, and I hope you guys do well uh, in your future exams and everything.